that you dare to dream really do come true. All right, we are back. In our final segment, I think I'll quote from three interesting essays. Two have to do with Occupy Wall Street, and one has to do with the great California water grab. I think we'll talk water first off by quoting from the Sacramento News and Review essay by Bert Wilson. We've had Bert on this show, a great guest. We would refer you to his YouTube video, Where Will the Water Come From? And, as he wrote in the Sacramento News in Review, One state, one water. I heard a Department of Water Resources employee blurt that out at a recent Delta water plan hearing. It's the latest DWR propaganda to get us to believe that Northern California water also belongs to Southern California. It has about as much credibility as compassionate conservatism. Still... It ranks second to the so-called co-equal goals of the Delta Water Plan. They're described in the California Water Code as, one, providing a more reliable water supply for the state of California, and two, protecting, restoring, and enhancing the Delta ecosystem. Said Bert, in my view, these dual goals actually constitute a logical fallacy, a statement that may appear logical on the surface, but is contradictory in fact. Ask any teacher of rhetoric... The dual goals are not co-equal, but mutually exclusive, because they falsely propose that the Delta ecosystem can be saved by taking even more water from it. He goes on, allow me to also decode these dual goals for you. One, a more reliable water supply for the state of California means sending more Delta water south. And two, Enhancing the Delta ecosystem means they need a cover story to make their water grab appear to be an environmental benefit to the Delta. He goes on, In my 46 years of political consumer activism, I have never seen a state water project where the fix has been more in or on so many cross-party levels. The fact that everything possible is being done to keep the Delta water plant from being voted upon by California citizens is indicative that something nefarious is going on. There's more in the piece. We recommend you check it out. We're going to bring Bert back on the show. Not sure when, but we're going to do it. Someone we've not yet had on but would like to is Matt Taibbi. His piece, How I Stopped Growing and Learned to Love the Protests in Rolling Stone, is worth a quote or two. He starts by admitting that he misunderstood, at first, the Occupy Wall Street movement. Said Matt, the right-wing media wasted no time in cannon-blasting the movement with its usual idiotic cliches, casting Occupy Wall Street as a bunch of dirty hippies who should get a job and stop chewing up Mike Bloomberg's police overtime budget with their urban sleepovers. Just like they did a half-century ago when the debate over the Vietnam War somehow stopped being about why we were brutally murdering millions of innocent Indo-Chinese civilians and instead became a referendum on brawlessness and long hair and flower child rhetoric. The depraved flax of the right-wing media have breezily blown off a generation of fraud and corruption and market-perverting bailouts, making the whole debate about the protesters themselves, their hygiene, their envy of the rich, their hypocrisy. The protesters, chirped Ann Coulter, needed three things, showers, jobs, and a point. Her colleague, Charles Krauthammer, went so far as to label the protesters hypocrites for having iPhones. Occupy Wall Street, he said, is Starbucks-sipping, Levi's-clad, iPhone-clutching protesters denouncing corporate America even as they weep for Steve Jobs, corporate titan, billionaire, eight times over. 
said Matt Taibbi. Apparently because Goldman and Citibank are corporations, no protester can ever consume a corporate product, not jeans, not cell phones, and definitely not coffee. If he also wants to complain about tax money going to pay off some billionaire banker's bets against his own crappy mortgages. Expressing, expressing some concern about the Occupy movement uh, not staying on message, he noted later in the piece that uh, people don't know exactly what they want. But as one friend of mine put it, they know one thing, screw this. We want something different, a different life with different values, or at least a chance at different values. He goes on, the police in their own way are symbols of the problem. All over the country, thousands of armed cops have been deployed to stand around and surveil and even assault the polite crowds of Occupy protesters. This deployment of law enforcement resources already dwarfs the amount of money and manpower that the government committed, quote in quotes, to fighting crime and corruption during the financial crisis. One Occupy Wall Street protester steps in the wrong place, and she immediately has police roping her off like a wayward cattle. But in the skyscrapers above the protests, anything goes. This is a profound statement about who law enforcement works for in this country. What happened on Wall Street over the past decade was an unparalleled crime wave. Yet, at most, maybe 1,500 federal agents were policing that beat. And that little group of financial cops barely made any cases at all. Yet... When thousands of ordinary people hit the streets with the express purpose of obeying the law and demonstrating their patriotism through peaceful protest, the police response is immediate and massive. There already have been hundreds of arrests, which is hundreds more than we ever saw during the years when Wall Street bankers were stealing billions of dollars from retirees and mutual fund holders and carpenters unions through the mass sale of fraudulent mortgage-backed securities. That's another piece we can recommend you read more fully. Finally, a piece by Jesse Isinger from ProPublica. It was in the New York Times business section. This one also deserves some lengthy quotes, I think. Said Mr. Isinger, Last week I had a conversation with a man who runs his own trading firm. In the process of fuming about competition from Goldman Sachs, he said with resignation and exasperation, the fact that they were bailed out and, and can borrow for free, it's pretty sickening. Though the sentiment is commonplace these days, I later found myself thinking about his outrage. Here is someone who is in the thick of the business, trading every day, and he's being sickened by the iniquities and corruption on Wall Street, and utterly persuaded that nothing has changed in the years since the financial crisis of 2008. Then I realized something odd. I have conversations like this as a matter of routine. I can't go a week without speaking to a hedge fund manager or analyst or even a banker who registers somewhere on the Wall Street derangement scale. The insiders have a critique similar to that of the outsiders. The financial industry has strayed far from being an intermediary between companies that want to raise capital so they can sell people things that they want. Instead, it is a machine to enrich itself, fleecing customers and widening income inequality. When it goes off the rails, it impoverishes the rest of us. When the crises come, as they inevitably do, banks hold the economy hostage warning that they will shoot us in the head if we don't bail them out. I won't pretend this is a widespread view in finance or even the view of a large minority. You don't hear this from the executives running the big Wall Street firms. You don't hear it from the average trader or investment banker. From them, we get self-pity. The critics are more often found on the periphery running hedge funds or working in independent research shops. They are retired, either voluntarily or not. They are low-level executives who haven't made scrambling up the corporate hierarchy their sole ambition in life. 
Article notes later, sadly, none of these closeted occupier sympathizers go public. But Mike Mayo, a bank analyst with the brokerage firm CLSA, which is majority owned by the French bank Credit Agricole, has done just that. In his book, Exile on Wall Street, Mr. Mayo offers an unvarnished account of the punishments he experienced after denouncing bank excesses. Talking to him, it's hard to tell you aren't interviewing Michael Moore. Mr. Mayo is particularly outraged over the compensation for bank executives. Excessive compensation sends a signal that you can take what you get and take it however you can, he told me. That sends another signal to outsiders that the system is rigged. I truly wish the protesters didn't have a leg to stand on, but the unfortunate truth is that they do. I asked Richard Kramer, who used to work as a technology analyst at Goldman Sachs until he became fed up with how it did business and now runs his own firm. Quote, there have been repeated fines and malfeasance at literally all the investment banks, but it doesn't seem to affect their behavior much. So I have to conclude, it's part of a strategy as a simple cost-benefit analysis that fines and legal costs are a small price to pay for the profits. The article concludes by noting that one notable absence in this crisis and its aftermath was a great statesman from the financial industry who would publicly embrace reform that mattered. Instead, mere months after the trillions had flowed from taxpayers and the Federal Reserve, they were back defending their prerogatives and fighting any regulations or changes to their business. Anyway, let's talk about some other stuff. Uh, Well, maybe some related stuff. About this time of year, almanacs seem to start popping up. But a couple of my favorites were almanacs that were not written uh, just for that one year in particular. Of course, none of them really are. But they do spend a disproportionate amount of time on things that happened in the previous year. But I'm referring, in this case, to the People's Almanac. It was a series of three great books by David Wallachinsky, previous Radio Parallax uh, guest. I'm thumbing through one the other day, in this case, the People's Almanac number 3, which was copyrighted in 1981. I was sort of taken by the... Uh, the section on the nations of the world. Unlike most almanacs, the People's Almanac chose to have a section called Who Really Rules? For example, in describing Kuwait, Walczynski said, Kuwait is a Bedouin emirate ruled by the Al-Sabah family. Since 1976, when the emir dissolved the National Assembly, there has been no elective body. Those, of course, were the freedom-loving lo- freedom people we had to protect from Saddam Hussein. But I sort of cracked up over the Who Really Rules uh, description of the United States of America. Said the People's Almanac 3, the U.S. government consists of the federal government divided into three semi-independent branches, 50 state governments with a similar structure, and numerous local agencies, counties, and cities. Each unit has a different function, but the federal executive branch, headed by President Ronald Reagan, is the center of power with effective control over the massive federal budget and over the U.S. armed forces. Although the U.S. has a two-party electoral system with active campaigns, political and economic power is concentrated in a ruling elite of white, predominantly Protestant men. Based in financial centers such as New York City, this elite directly controls most U.S.-based multinational corporations, major media, influential charitable foundations, major private universities, and most public utilities. Although much of the elite's wealth is inherited, Membership is open to capable or newly rich outsiders. The piece goes on. The elite exerts only indirect control over the political system through campaign contributions, lobbying, and policy formation study associations. 
in which it prepares political leaders for higher office. Both the Republican Party and the Democratic Party draw upon elite members for appointed positions, but rarely is one elected. The U.S. ruling class has historically been forced to share part of its power in exchange for social stability and economic productivity. Consequently, other groups such as organized labor, ethnic minorities, small business and professional organizations, and single-issue lobbies also influence policy. Let me remind you, this was written in 1981 when Ronald Reagan was president, and we actually had manufacturing in the United States and a labor force to go with it. Anyway, David Wallachinsky, hell of a guy. I think he got that one pretty much right. All right, in our three minutes that we have left on the show, we want to, you know, tap into some of that bowl game excitement. Now, in past years, we've made fun of the plethora of uh, college football games, which we'll be subjected to over the next six weeks. But I must say that this year I am dumbfounded at what is going to pass for public spectacles. For example, December 30th, the Music City Bowl. You'll get to see Mississippi State, with its 6-6 record, go against Wake Forest, with its 6-6 record. And doggone it, by the time that game is over, someone's going to have a winning record. Astonishingly, the same thing can be said about the Minky Car Care Bowl of December 30th and the Gator Bowl on January 2nd. In the former case, Texas A&M, 6-6, will play Northwestern, 6-6. In the latter case, Florida, 6-6, will play Ohio State, 6-6. That's three bowl games, nobody with a winning record. But I must say this is topped by the Fight Hunger Bowl of December 30th, wherein UCLA, with a 6-7 and seven record, will go against Illinois, 6-6. Six and six. Do you think maybe the talent's being spread just a little too thinly? Of course, if you are a local college fan, you may want to note that Cal is in a bowl, the Holiday Bowl, on December 28th, where they're with their 7-5 record are challenging Texas, also 7-5. And the Fiesta Bowl on January 2nd will see Stanford 11-1 against Oklahoma State 11-1. Hey, did I read that right? Two teams that have only lost two games between them? Ah, it must be a typo. College football. Is it a national disgrace? Yeah, I think so. We did the disclaimer, right? Yes. Okay. It's also said to note that Penn State is in a bowl, the Ticket City Bowl on January 2nd, where... They'll pit their 9-3 record against Houston, 12-1. Speaking of Penn State, I think we'll close with the oops file. And for this item, we are in debt to Robin. Citing a piece from SFGate, we have the following. Jerry Sandusky's attorney really isn't doing him any favors. Sandusky, the former Penn State assistant coach who has been accused of over 50 counts of sexual assaults against young boys, waived his preliminary hearing this morning. His attorney... Joseph Amendola then addressed the media in an impassioned, if horribly misguided, manner. Amendola announced that anyone who believes that Sandusky is a child molester should call 1-800-REALITY. Well, (laughs) apparently some people did, and they discovered that 1-800-REALITY is a gay sex line that offers, quote, the hottest place for triple X action, just 99 cents a minute, end quote. Noted the piece, this isn't the first time Amendola's come under the red-hot spotlight. According to a report, he allegedly impregnated a teenage girl when he was 49 years old. He later married her, although they are now separated. 
on that note, let's bring this show to a close. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. We will see you next week at the same time.